Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and it is a real pleasure um, to have Priscilla Gilman on the podcast today. Um, Priscilla and I were, were chatting for like almost an hour, I think, um, it, before I pressed the start recording button, uh, because we have so much to talk about, and some of that will come up in the episode. Um, but it, it's just a real delight for me to have her her on the podcast, and I, um, I'm, I'm very happy to say that the poet she's chosen to talk about is the, the English poet William Cooper, um, and the poem of his that, that Priscilla has chosen is I think it's the last poem, the last original mm-hmm. poem or something like that mm-hmm. I've seen it written mm-hmm. that that he wrote um, a poem called The Castaway. It's a very beautiful poem, strange poem, a sad poem. So prepare yourselves for that. Um, but but it's one that I'm really excited for us to talk about. Um, so I'm sure many of you know already who um, Priscilla Gilman is, but in case you don't, let me tell you a little bit about her. She is the author of two books. Her first book, it's called The Anti-Romantic Child, A Memoir of Unexpected Joy. And that was published by Harper in, in 2011. And then much more recently, this year, um, Priscilla has published her second book, a book called The Critic's Daughter, um, which is also a memoir. It's published by Norton. Um, and as I said earlier this year, it's a marvelous book, and I'll, I'll have more to say about it in a moment. Um, Priscilla is a former professor of English, um, uh, first at Yale University, which is where I met her two decades ago, I think, um, <laughs> maybe maybe even more than that, um, and then uh, at Vassar College. And it, and in that part of her life, she wrote a terrific, important article on today's poet, um, William Cooper, in the very prestigious academic journal ELH. Um, and, and that article is in part about the role played by criticism in the poet William Cooper's imagining of his own self, of his life, of what it meant to be a poet. Um, So Priscilla writes very um, interestingly about how Cooper, on the one hand, adopted a strategy of diffidence, a kind of posture of seeming not to care what the critics thought, Um, But on the other hand, as we see in his letters, and actually I should say here, just as an aside, that William Cooper is one of the great letter writers in the history of English poetry. And that when I first met Priscilla Gilman, it was because I was a young graduate student at Yale, and um, she was a young faculty member at Yale, and I had proposed to do um, a kind of independent study on poets' letters and my idea was that I would um, pick the different members of the Yale English department. And as I read um, a poet's letters who fell in their field, I would have um, a meeting with them to talk about that poet's correspondence. So I talked, so it was a great way to get to know, you know, a wide variety of, of faculty in the department. And I talked to Priscilla Gilman about William Cooper's letters. So, um, so it's, it's this lovely kind of sense of rondeur to be back again all these years later to talk about the same poet. Um, In those letters, Priscilla writes that we get a version of Cooper that critics haven't always fully acknowledged, that he was in in ways that might seem surprising given the reputation he has of being sort of, he has the side of him that's sort of career obsessed, that cares very much 
what the critics will say, that is um, highly anxious about what they what they will think of his, of his books, and who is constantly sort of toggling back and forth between that first attitude, that attitude of diffidence, and this other attitude, in which he is um, internalizing criticisms that he imagines his poems receiving and revising in anticipation of them. Um, Priscilla writes in that article, quote, that in the face of criticism's potentially freezing power, Cooper devises a theory of the criticized self that ensures its flexibility by maximizing its internal variations, if never quite freeing itself once and for all. Um, so I read that sentence in, in preparation for today's, I, I read the article and I read the sentence in which, uh, the, the sentence which appears in that article, the sentence I've just read to you in anticipation of today's conversation. And in the meantime, I've been reading Priscilla's most recent book, The Critic's Daughter. And it, it just, you know, dawned on me <laughs> that, um, just how personal, that sentence and the article to which it belongs must have been for Priscilla, who who wrote it, you know, I don't know, 20 years ago, let's say. I, th- I think that's about right. So here's a, here's a quotation from now, not from that article, but from her new book, The Critic's Daughter, um, which is a, a, a memoir that touches on many aspects of Priscilla's life, but at the center of the book is the figure of um, her own father, who was a very important um, theater critic and literary critic. Um, So this is Priscilla writing about her father, quote, criticism for my father was a diagnosis of false seeing, a diagnosis of false being. Um, She writes in this book about what it was like to grow up under the watchful eye of such a critic. And her account makes clear how literature, and and when I say literature, I mean sort of all of it, um, which includes things like actual writers with their actual lives that are (laughs) messy and unruly and fun and boring sometimes and unpredictable. Um, But, and also things like the publishing industry, which, um, you know, Priscilla had a kind of unusual access to as as a as a child, both through the figure of her father and the figure of her mother, um, who was a, a literary agent. Um, but but not just those things. Also, of course, crucially, poems. And and one thing that I really love in reading this new book is is how much poetry plays a role. Um, in Priscilla's account of her own life and of this. Um, and of these, you know, crucial relationships in her life and um, how poetry becomes a way for her of making sense of experiences that maybe did not make sense or did not sufficiently make sense at the time that she lived them. But, you know, as I'm, as I'm reading the book and thinking about the Priscilla Gilman who wrote about William Cooper and his anticipation of criticism um, and the strategies he devised to accommodate the anxieties that the um, anticipation of criticism produced in him, uh, what has become clear to me is how vital poetry has been to her own capacity, I mean Priscilla's capacity, to, quote, maximize internal variations. 
um, in her own life. And so, you know, this is a writer and, and I, and uh, Priscilla Gilman is a writer who, um, is, is, um, near and dear to my heart in the sense that, you know, she's thinking about how literature and life are not two realms that we can easily separate and that in the right kind of hands and with the right kind of attention that poetry, um, can help us make sense of our lives and our lives can help us make sense of poems. Um, and so it's, it's, it's because of all of that, that I'm so thrilled to welcome her onto the podcast today. Priscilla, um, how are you doing? How are you feeling? What's going on? <laughs> oh, I'm doing a lot better after that glorious introduction, Kamran. Wow. Oh. That was, um, I hope you have this written down and can send that to me. That's one of the most beautiful, <laughs> um, luminously empathetic understandings of my work. And I love the way you put the two books in relationship to each other. And of course, the first book, I just want to tell the listeners, since this is a poetry podcast, um, is filled with the poetry of William Wordsworth in particular. And I wrote my dissertation on Cooper, Wordsworth, and Jane Austen. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, that's that's amazing. I don't have it written down, but I can um, I can send you a link to the podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'll listen to it whenever I'm in a low moment. Whenever I'm feeling like a castaway, Cameron, I'll listen to right. it. Right. Yes. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, so with that in mind, and. I, um, Tell, you know, so interesting, just to think back for a, a moment to the dissertation you just described to us, which I'm sure was fantastic. Um, the two other figures in that dissertation are perhaps uh, William Wordsworth and Jane Austen, uh, perhaps more well known to the non-specialist, you know, non-PhD in English literature um, than William Cooper is. Um, and so I think uh, some amount of contextualizing might be useful at the at the top of this um, conversation, Priscilla. So, um, could I ask you to tell us what you think the kind of uninitiated might need to know about William Cooper, and maybe along the way, would you feel willing to tell us a little bit about how you came to be a reader of William Cooper and Absolutely. why it was you came to care about his writing? Here's so much. It's been such a joy to go back into his work this week in preparation for talking to you, Kamran. So I was always very passionate about poetry, but I went to a school called Brearley uh, in New York City, where it, it was a fantastic English department, but the romantics and the 18th century poets were never taught. It was all about like metaphysical poetry, modern poetry. I went to Yale. I thought his name was pronounced Cowper. I'd read it in a couple of books. I didn't really know much. And I first encountered the castaway. I encountered him first through the castaway uh -huh. because I was taking a class on modern British fiction with Mark Walliger at Yale and Mr. Ramsey into The Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf in the final section of that novel, quotes, we perished each alone yeah. when he's on the boat going to the lighthouse with his children. And then he says, but I beneath rougher seas and whelmed in deeper gulfs than he. And this enrages his daughter, Cam, in the novel, who says, why are you, you know, drawing attention to yourself, demanding sympathy, et cetera. So there was a little on a handout. This is from this William Cooper poem. And it was interesting to me, but I didn't really pursue it. 
And maybe and we then, should just say that for people who don't know the novel that, mm-hmm. sorry, bit of a plot spoiler here, but Mr. Ramsey's wife has died and the mother of, of those, of those Ramsey children has, has died earlier in that book. And, yes. and, and, and I suppose that's um, context for his recitation of these lines Absolutely. by Cooper and, Absolutely. and, and that for Wolf, Mr. Ramsey was a kind of figure that was a kind of fictionalized version of her own father, maybe Leslie Stephen and, 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 and Wolf's mother had died when she was a, ch- um, a child. Okay. Absolutely. And Tell as, us more. as had yeah. Cooper's, Cooper's mother died when he was a child. Uh, and in the, it, it's interesting in the first section of To the Lighthouse, it's in three sections. When Mrs. Ramsey is still alive, Mr. Ramsey is walking around quoting Tennyson's Charge of the Light Brigade, mm. um, much more kind of aggressively uh, invoking this kind of martial imagery, this um, I'm powerful and I'm important. And some critics have seen the quoting of Cooper in the final section, even as it frustrates his daughter, who thinks he's kind of pleading for sympathy as a sign of his growth as a character, that he's now admitting his vulnerability, his feeling of having being bereft and having lost the most important person to him, who was sort of the foundation um, of his sense of self, his wife, in the second section of the novel. So that's one of the most famous appearances of the castaway in literature. The other one would be in Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. So I, in the spring of 1993, was taking Jill Campbell's 18th century novel lecture class at Yale. And in her lecture on Sense and Sensibility, she had a big quote from the castaway up on the board. Marian Dashwood in Sense and Sensibility is the sister who's associated most obviously with sensibility. She's very passionate. She loves nature and she adores Cooper. Right. And the the rake that she falls in love with, sorry, another spoiler, everyone, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mr. Willoughby, uh, she falls in love with him in part because he sufficiently appreciates Cooper and reads Cooper with the amount of ardor and investment that Miriam demands in a romantic right. partner. She dismisses Eleanor's partner, potential partner, um, for not reading Cooper with enough passion. And I actually right. pulled out this quote for you, Kamran. Yeah. She says to her mother that Edward just has no real taste. Uh, oh, mama, she says, how spiritless, how tame was Edward's manner in reading to us last night. I felt for my sister most severely. Yet she bore it with so much composure, she seemed scarcely to notice it. I could hardly keep my seat to hear those beautiful lines, which have frequently almost driven me wild, pronounced with such impenetrable calmness, such dreadful indifference. Interesting, indifference, the word that I use in my piece about Cooper. Uh, And then the mother sort of rebukes her saying, he would certainly have done more justice to simple and elegant prose. I thought so at the time, but you would give him Cooper. Nay, mama. If he is not to be animated by Cooper, but we must allow for difference of taste. And in the film they have, um, in the Emma Thompson film of Sense and Sensibility, Uh Hugh Grant playing this character reads the castaway in the most un-Hugh Grant-like way, stumbling over the words and sounding like he doesn't understand at all what's going on. Uh So Well, that's funny. I think of Hugh Grant as a stumbler, as a charming stumbler. But you think that's un-Hugh Grant. He's (laughs) anyway, that's not. (laughs) 
I think he's a, char- I think he's a charming to... stumbler that's animated by passion. I see. Here okay, he's sort on. of let's not say stumbler, let's say he's stilted, comrade. Ah, right. He right. reads it in this way like where he breaks not long beneath yeah, yeah. the well, you know, it's just yeah, it's yeah. very unappealing, very unromantic. Sure, sure. So when I went into the El Grado program that fall. I decided I want to read these 18th century poets of sensibility that are never taught anymore. There were no classes on them. Um, And I did a directed reading with Joel Campbell on Thomas Gray, uh, Chatterton, Christopher Smart, William Cooper. So these are sort of the poets that that precede in the kind of usual history of English poetry, the great romantic, first generation romantic poets. Exactly. And and that maybe follow the those very different kind of 18th century poets like Pope and Dryden and so on. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. And in uh, in Sense and Sensibility, actually, that lineage is invoked when Eleanor talks, she's speaking to Marianne and she says of Mr. Willoughby, you know that he thinks of Cooper and Scott. You are certain of his estimating their beauties as he ought, and you have received every assurance of his admiring Pope no more than is proper. Right. So right. these are the these are the, we call them variously the pre-romantics, the poets of sensibility, right. uh, the mad poets, because a lot of them struggled with insanity, um, and one a number of them died by suicide or attempted to die right. by suicide, including Cooper. So when I did this directed reading, I just absolutely fell in love with Cooper. So I'll give you a little bio of Cooper. So yeah. he was born in 1731, and into a into a fairly well-off family. His father is a reverend. His mother dies when he's six years old, giving birth to his brother. And the brother, Cooper and the brother are the only surviving children. I think there were three or four others who died young. So he lives haunted by these vivid memories that he has of his mother. He writes a very beautiful poem on the receipt of my mother's picture. Someone sent him a, a painting of his mother Uh, And he writes about that being a kind of primal wound in his consciousness, the first intimation that his life is not going to go well. His father sends him away to boarding school where he is mercilessly bullied and tormented. He is shy. He's physically rather fragile. Mm. And and there's a famous moment uh, where he says in a letter that all he remembers of the worst bully is the buckles on his shoes because he was so afraid of him that he couldn't look up to look at right. his face. And he was looking down continually. The father wanted him to be a lawyer. He very much, I'm, I'm sure there are a number of people listening to this podcast who are already <laughs> identifying. <okay? laughs> so his father very much wants him to become a proper lawyer. He uh, studies for the bar, but never ends up being a lawyer. He is offered a clerkship. Uh, at one point through some family connections. And in order to get this job, he has to do a public examination, like an oral exam. And he's overcome by anxiety. And he has the first of a series of mental breakdowns. When he's staying in this uh, institution, he comes under the care of a beneficent, kind, evangelical doctor who converts him to a kind of liberal evangelicalism. And he finds faith um, in in God, restores him to a sense of well-being to some extent. 
But he, throughout the rest of his life, he struggles with mental illness. He has a series of breakdowns. He wrote a, a poem in the mid 1770s called Hatred and Vengeance, My Eternal Portion. I mean, mm. that will give you a sense sort of prefiguring mm. the stark and terribly sad image of himself that he gives us in his last poem, The Castaway. But in the 1780s, the 1780s are his glory decade right. where he he has a lot of wonderful friends who support him and help him. Uh, oh, he also, Comrade, I should say, was in love with his cousin when he was younger. Father forbade the marriage. That was another source of torment to him. They continued a kind of surreptitious romance, and she supported him financially and took care of him when he was sick. In the 1780s, he but lands- But he didn't marry, is that right? Uh, never married. Right. Never yeah. married. Engaged. Um, he was engaged to a woman named Mary Unwin, who, when her husband died, he proposed to her, but they never married, but they lived together until she died. And she died a couple of years before The Castaway was written. And mm. that was, that's one of the impetuses behind the poem, that he feels like he has lost right. this, the great prop, uh, the great support, uh, the person who understood him and supported him the best. So in the 1780s, he becomes a best-selling poet. He becomes extremely popular. He writes uh, the John Gilpin, which is a very popular comic poem. He writes a mock epic poem called The Task, uh, which Coleridge loved. Coleridge and Wordsworth adored Cooper. They found him yeah. congenial in the sense that he celebrated nature. He celebrated domestic life, even though he never married or had children. Um, there's a famous invocation to the sofa in the task. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and another one about the cucumber, which is really right. wonderful. Every time uh -huh. I eat a, a cucumber bowl, I think of I think of Cooper <laughs> and his celebration of the cucumber. He was also um, loved animals right. and um, was an early supporter of animal rights. Was an abolitionist. Was on the right side of all the issues. Yeah. Early feminist. Uh, wrote a number of just beautiful poems about various animals, epitaph on a hare, and they're, they're mock epic, but they're also deeply moving. So connect, connecting the, the sort of portrait you've just given to us of him as a poet and of where, you know, his, his sort of the shape of his poetic career and of his life to some extent, it, it's sort of easier now to go back to the role he played in subsequent, um, English novels and to think about what, like what, what is it about Cooper that's letting him stand in, in the Austin novel as a kind of marker of a certain aspect of character that a certain kind of woman might find desirable in a mate. Um, or what is it in the wolf that, that allows him to play the role if it does of indicating a kind of softening or something like that in Mr. Ramsey. This is in other words, a poet who is, um, I don't know, how would you put it? Congenial, but feeling and feeling, feeling. Yeah. Uh, he writes in one and another um, one other aspect of his career that's important to share with your listeners is that he famously wrote a number of hymns. Uh, mm -hmm. He worked on hymns with John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. He did not write Amazing Grace, but he wrote God Moves in Mysterious Ways. He mm. wrote uh, he wrote a number of hymns that became quite celebrated. And he is associated for Marianne in particular in Sense and Sensibility with a capacity for strong feeling, um, not censoring strong feeling, yeah. being open to sublimity, being mm. open to the wonders of nature, 
not in a uh, sort of cultivated way, but wild, untrammeled nature in the way that the romantics celebrated it. You think about, uh, he wrote a beautiful poem called Yardley Oak about this tree that he had loved from childhood. Some people see it as a precursor of Tintern Abbey, right? Going back to a place and and an aspect of the landscape that is scored with memories for him. And he cherishes the oak. I remember Jill Campbell saying this in uh, her lecture that, that Cooper cherishes the oak because it is marked with age, because it has history associated with it. And she connected that to the fascination with the Gothic in the 1790s. Right. And again, preparing the way for the Gothic tinged poems of lyrical ballads by Wordsworth and Coleridge and uh, Jane Austen's Marianne. Now, another thing that we'll say, though, um, Comrade, is that feeling when taken too far can lead to madness. Yeah. And Marianne has a breakdown in sense and sensibility. So in, in a sense, for adoration of Cooper, Jane Austen is sort of uh, alerting the knowing reader, right? This may not end well for Marianne. Right. Right. Well, that's all fascinating. Yeah. So, so Cooper might be, um, a, a love of Cooper might be an interesting and alluring thing to know about a boy that you like, <laughs> but, <laughs> yes. but it might also be a red flag. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, It might be uh, a red flag. You know, yeah. I annotated an edition of Sense and Sensibility last year. Uh-huh. Um, for an app called Threadable, which is, it's a very cool app and it's meant for the common, sort of just every reader. And I wrote about that, that Willoughby and Marianne, it's almost like they're giving each other mixtapes. Yes. They're sort of comparing that, like, do you like the Before Sunrise movies? Oh, I do too. Okay, yeah, we can fall in love. (laughs) Um, And it's both extremely appealing and alluring, but also absolute red flag territory. Yeah, and it, I, I guess I guess it also um, is sort of premised on a theory that many or most of us operate by, I would think, that if, if you know, and I think this has something to do um, with how you conceive of criticism in a way. Um, the theory being, well, if you tell me what you're into aesthetically and culturally, I know something about who you are yes. interpersonally. Yes. You know? Yes. And I guess it's not, we, we shouldn't assume that that would be true or that, you know, in other words, you might find out that I'm really into like some kind of music that it has no discernible bearing on my <laughs> personality as you get to know me. But that's, I mean, I, that's not the way I think about things. I suspect it's not the way you think about things. And it's it's not, it's not, I love this idea of like giving someone a mixtape because, you know, giving them a mixtape is a way of um, telling them what you think about them. Mm-hmm. But it's also a way of sort of showing them who you are. Yes. Um, right. So um, interesting to think of Cooper functioning in something like that way um, for these fictional characters. Um uh, from from um, the well from the two novels that you've cited, so um, let's talk about the castaway, Priscilla. It's it's um, as as um, as I think you mentioned, uh, or as as we've established, it's the last poem he wrote. Um, it it is um, I, you know in a moment I'm going to ask you to read it, but I'll, I'll leave it to you to decide. Do you think it would be useful to? Um, give a little bit of context about how it was that Cooper came to write it beforehand, or would you would do you want to read it first and then we can talk about like the story yeah, that he read? That I can up give to a you. little bit of context. Yeah. 
So he's not writing a lot of original poetry in the 1790s. Um, he becomes quite celebrated as a translator of Homer. He's doing a lot of translations. And as I, I think I said earlier, he loses Mary Unwin. I believe she dies in 1796. And he's not in the best of health. He died of what they call dropsy. Um, some kind mm -hmm. of edema in 1800. This poem was right. written in 1799, published posthumously. Right. Uh, we don't know whether he intended it for publication. So it's, and, and it's really one of the very few um, original works that we have from that last decade of his life. Right. And I will say also that um, it's based on a story that was very well known, right, in the 18th century. This uh, Anson's Voyages Around the World, this famous sea captain who had written this prose account of um, the perils of being on the open water. And, you know, it was interesting. I remember when I first, I read a couple of articles about the background of this. And this castaway, this one guy who was left alone in the water and died, is just one of a number of people who suffer in this account. In other words, that account right. talks about, oh, and we had all these guys who died of this illness on the ship. And then we had another thing where um, someone had a heart attack, you know, and, and we were, the ship was banged around and all these terrible things happened. And then there was this guy who went overboard and we couldn't rescue him. Cooper singles out that one guy who went overboard and couldn't be rescued and makes him the subject of the poem. So in a sense, that's his revision of this legend. In other words, he's pulling out one story, one individual. You can see how he's anticipating right. romanticism with that, right. right? It's not about the group. It's about no. this one person. It feels like a very kind like um like there's a sort of allegory there about lyric poetry in particular, right? The sort of the distilled solitary experience. Just absolutely. As right. Absolutely. When I was rereading it, I was thinking about um, he would have been able to read the first edition of Lyrical Ballads published in 1798 right. before he wrote this poem, because there's a lot of ancient Mariner stuff going on yeah, here. So he would that it's possible. Mm -hmm. He would not have been able to read the Lucy poems, which were written right. around the same time he wrote this. But I, I kept thinking about mm. um, she is in her grave and oh, the difference to me, yeah. right? Which many people yeah. say like, Modern poetry is born when Wordsworth says this. But yeah. Cooper is doing a similar thing in this yeah. poem. Yeah. Um, that's that's wonderful context. And so now I think we really want to hear the poem. And 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 I'll just remind listeners, um, as I say this, I don't know if it's if it's audible at all, but there's thunder now happening outside my window, which feels <gasps> apt or something. I hope it, it it doesn't mean that we wind up losing power. That would be a tragedy. But um uh, Let's let's listen to the poem. And before you start reading, Priscilla, um, I just want to remind listeners that there's a link in the episode notes. So if you want to look at the text of the poem as Priscilla reads, uh, you can you can find it there. But um, without further ado, here's Priscilla Gilman reading The Castaway by William Cooper. Obscurest night involved the sky. The Atlantic billows roared. When such a destined wretch as I washed headlong from on board of friends, of hope, of all bereft, his floating home forever left. No braver chief could Albion boast than he with whom he went, nor ever ship left Albion's coast with warmer wishes sent. He loved them both, but both in vain, nor him beheld, 
nor her again. Not long beneath the whelming brine, expert to swim, he lay. Nor soon he felt his strength decline or courage die away. But waged with death a lasting strife, supported by despair of life. He shouted, nor his friends had failed to check the vessel's course. But so the furious blast prevailed that pitiless perforce, they left their outcast mate behind and scudded still before the wind. Some succor yet they could afford, and such as storms allow, the cask, the coop, the floated cord, delayed not to bestow. But he they knew, nor ship nor shore, what air they gave, should visit more. Nor, cruel as it seemed, could he their haste himself condemn, aware that flight in such a sea alone could rescue them. Yet bitter felt it still to die, deserted, and his friends so nigh. He long survives, who lives an hour in ocean, self-upheld. And so long he, with unspent power, his destiny repelled. And ever, as the minutes flew, entreated help, or cried, adieu. At length his transient respite passed, his comrades, who before had heard his voice in every blast, could catch the sound no more. For then, by toil subdued, he drank the stifling wave, and then he sank. No poet wept him, but the page of narrative sincere that tells his name, his worth, his age, is wet with Anson's tear. And tears by bards or heroes shed alike immortalize the dead. I therefore purpose not or dream descanting on his fate to give the melancholy theme a more enduring date. But misery still delights to trace its semblance in another's case. No voice divine the storm allayed, no light propitious shone. When snatched from all effectual aid, we perished each alone. But I, beneath a rougher sea, and whelmed in deeper gulfs than he. Priscilla, thanks so much. M- much, much better than your description of the Hugh Grant rendition. <laughs> <We got>, it's <laughs> uh, a low bar, comrade, a low bar. No, no, that was, that, was, <laughs> that was very nice. It, it, um, it occurs to me that maybe there are just a couple of like uh, proper nouns or something that we ought to gloss for people who aren't familiar. Albion is um, what another name for Britain, a sort of yes. traditional name for, for Britain. Okay. Um, so no braver chief could Albion boast. So, so as, as um, I think I heard you say that the story was famous and Cooper would have, have read, and this comes to the other um, proper name that's in the, the poem Anson's tear, when that's referred to about halfway through the poem, mm-hmm. Anson is the writer of this um nonfiction prose account 
of his sort of disasters by sea that he is disasters by sea. Right. Yes. Right. Okay. Okay. Good. So, um, and, and, um, and so Cooper would have, would have known that and would have expected his, his contemporaries to be very familiar with these tales as well. Absolutely. You know, some critics say that in this poem, by invoking this famous story, um, it was published, I believe in 1748, this account, Anson's Voyage Around the World. Uh, and it's an account of a voyage that went from 1740 to, I think, 1744, 1745. That in a sense, it's a bid for immortality on Cooper's part, that he is invoking this famous story at the very same time that he's saying in the poem that he does, so is not trying to immortalize the dead. Um, he's choosing something that people would know and when he says that no bard has written about this before, well, he's the first. He's doing it. So right, right. So sort of hitching his wagon to um, to a bright star. Exactly, Cameron. And there's that there's that paradox again that you noted it, that I discussed in my piece about his letters. Right there's that paradox where he's both diffident and ambitious. Right. Where he's right. both humble and sort of self deprecating, and at the same time passionate about making a name for himself. Right, right, right. I I can see how that's that's playing out here. Now, it, it sort of in terms of that, I, I suppose one thing we'll want to do soon enough is to kind of work our way through the poem a little bit. But mm-hmm. but um, before we dive in, as it were, again, bad. <laughs> sorry, bad uh, bad metaphor there. Um, I I I find it useful sometimes just to sort of um, stand back slightly from the poem and sit, be able to say some descriptive things about it. So, so one thing I'm noticing is is that you know there's a first person pronoun in the poem, but it appears sort of at the beginning and at the end. It's a kind of framing, right? That's a that's an interesting kind of rhetorical strategy. And do you have any preliminary thoughts about that? Um, the pronouns in this poem. Well, are crazy. I, yeah. Go ahead. Crazy. Um, you know, all of these hymns and hers and the I appears in the first, you know, I, I would say the first stanza when you read it, you think it's going to, you think when he says when such a destined wretch as I, that he is actually describing an experience that he had when he went yeah. into the water on a stormy day. Right. And and you think maybe, oh, it's, um, this is a, like a persona poem. It's a dramatic monologue of some exactly. kind or something like that. It's like, yeah. it's like an ancient Mariner story, right. Right? right? That's what it feels like. I so agree with you. And the first jarring moment is when you get to that final line of the first stanza, his floating home. And that's the first indication that this isn't that, that the as is a comparative. It's not, right. I was that person, right? right? It's there was a destined wretch. And the destined wretch phrase is so interesting too. Yeah. Um, you know, in the poem about his mother, um, I said that the loss of the mother was sort of a primal wound for him. Right. He describes his mother. I'm going to see if I can remember this. He says something about, he asks her if she was conscious of the tears that he has cried for her since losing her. And he says, Hovered thy spirit or thy sorrowing son, wretch, even then, life's journey just begun. Uh, right. So, and now we have another, now we yeah. have another wretch. Um, and this idea of right. being a destined wretch is yeah. also very strange. Is it, is it, um, 
is it useful to be, I mean, I know you mentioned earlier that he'd sort of turned to this kind of, um, I forget how you described it precisely, but somewhat liberal kind of evangelical form of Christianity. Mm-hmm. When I, when I read the phrase destined wretch, I'm thinking of perhaps more severe forms of Christianity or something, but is is do you think it's useful to think about Cooper's own religion in a, in a moment like that? Absolutely. Yeah. He believed that he was irrevocably damned by God. He believed that that is why he, and, and friends would pull him out of this, but he would return to this idea of that, you know, the sort of Calvinist idea of predestination yeah. and that he was in the camp of the wretches and that nothing that he could do could get him out of that. And there's uh, a letter in 1773. Uh, he wrote, my sin and judgment are like peculiar. I am a castaway, deserted and condemned. So that's 1773, you say. So 20, 25, six, years, 25 years, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Later. He's, We're not he's math people, but that was close enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> sure. Sure. Close enough. And and after and still late enough though for him to have known the answer, maybe he was thinking about it even as he as he wrote that line. Maybe he was. I mean, shipwreck narratives were there, and uh, think about Robinson Crusoe. I mean, sure. they were very very popular in the 18th century. Right. Sure. Okay. But, yeah. Okay. That's that's super interesting. And yes, I mean, I'll, I'll cop to just the confusion that you sort of hypothesized um, a first reader of the poem having. Like as I started reading this, I thought. I I had to reread that transition from the first stanza exactly. to the second a few times to understand the kind of move that was being made. Yep. Um, I suppose that could you, you one could almost have a kind of objection to it, like like um, it, maybe it's a little bit like the objection um, that um, it's is it um, is it Camright has to to Mister Ramsey at, um, into the lighthouse like. Why are you putting yourself in this? Why are you sort of pitying yourself in Absolutely, this way? Yeah. Cameron. And like right. the last lines, I mean, I, I don't know if you know that I'm, I, I'm, I'm also a meditation teacher and I'm a Buddhist meditation teacher. And I, I did not know. You know, that. it's something that I tell my students, you, know, you never compare suffering. You never say, oh, my mm. suffering is worse than your suffering. Or, and that's exactly what he's doing in those last lines of the poem. We'll get there. Yeah, but right. again, like, why are you inserting yourself into this story? I think another way of looking at it, though, and maybe a more compassionate way of looking at it, is that he's both identifying with and, and using this castaway, this famous castaway, as an emblem for not only his suffering, but for all, in other words, we're all castaways in a sense. Uh, We all perish each alone. Um, You know, and and I think also he's evading uh, writing about himself. You know, this is something that people would say he's pre-romantic rather than romantic because he's not writing. He's not writing to Internabi. He's not saying, well, then I was like this and then I did this and then I came back and here's my sister, right? Right. He's, he's, (laughs) That's getting a nice, personal nice summary of Tintern Abbey. That's terrific. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, Comrade. I, love it. I um I wrote I, I have a piece on foxnews.com. I never thought that would happen, but it's about Tintern uh-huh. Abbey as the greatest poem ever written. So wow. you know. Okay. Yeah, well, that was, we'll that have, was to, my we'll case. have to link to that. Okay. Yeah. Um that's not the usual fare one gets on Fox News. No, I was com. happy to bring poetry to foxnews.com. So Okay. This was ten years ago before it went quite as toxic as as it is now. Sure, sure. So, so <laughs> 
<laughs> so right, but we might expect, in other words, that if 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 what he's really writing about is himself, and he's sort of comparing himself to this famous shipwreck story, that you you could imagine a poem that would begin by invoking this famous story that you all know, and then getting into the meat of like how my life is like that. Exactly. But this doesn't do that. This sort of evades that by exactly. just going towards the story. Yeah. Um, and is it worth saying anything at all, Priscilla, also about the kind of formal organization of the poem? So it's in these stanzas. The stanzas are six lines long. They, they're sort of, um, they, the first four lines are a kind of ballad meter or something like that. Yes, right? ballad meter, the, yeah. And then it ends with this kind of rhyming tetrameter couplet each time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Do, do you have any thought? I mean, maybe, uh, surely... There, there might be moments where we can talk about specific instances where that produces an interesting effect or where you're curious about the rhyme or something like that. But just that sort of general formal organization of the poem, is it alerting you to anything or what do you think about when, when you hear me describe it in those terms? Yeah, there a, a number of people talk about it in terms of um, mimicking the motion of the waves. And I don't know, that seems maybe. a little... Yeah. easy but um i think it's it, it's interesting that a very you know some of his poems are not as intricate and structured as this and it does seem to me that it's in a way a, a way of right after great pain a formal feeling comes right it's very uh-huh. um he's containing the anguish and he's containing the feeling of being out of control, which he writes about in his letters by choosing something that has a very regular meter, yeah. a lot of intricate rhyming. I love the couplets um, yeah, yeah. at the ends of ends of the stanzas. And, you know, we can look at specific examples where the lines aren't end stopped and there's enjambment in a way that makes the meaning uncertain in interesting yeah. ways. Yeah. And then also, sure. you know, rhymes off rhymes where you're like, Ooh, that's right. a little strange. Right. Um, and, and you don't get that feeling of conclusiveness. Like for example, in, you know, vain yeah, and again, right, yeah. behind and wind, right. Where mm-hmm. you're wanting to get that feeling of something rounding out at the end of the stanza and you don't. And it's, it leaves you with an interesting and unsettled feeling. Because it's a slant rhyme or a sight rhyme or both of those, right? Okay, but it's not producing that perfect kind of rhyming sound. Exactly. Yeah, and there, there is enjambment throughout the poem, but never between the stanzas, right? So that, that I like this idea that, that you gave us that 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 the stanzaic form is some attempt to kind of um, enclose or manage organize a kind of um, frightening or unruly, emotionally turbulent um, and and physically turbulent um, experience. I, I feel as though I should know the answer to, to this, but you know, the, is, is, is this a, a totally, um, is, is there anything original about this kind of pairing of the ballads ballad meter with the rhyming couplet, or is that a relatively standard form? I don't I don't know, but it does seem like on the one hand, the ballad meter is like what ballad meter wants to do is to tell a story. I mean, you've already talked about Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, for instance. It's almost exactly contemporary with this poem, right? Um, Which which famously does that. Couplets, I suppose you could tell a story in couplets, but the the kind of, (laughs) to use like a term of, of our time, like the energy of couplet 
feels to me to be sort of contra narrative in a I way, right? I so agree with you yeah. about that actually. And yeah. I and I let's look into that more because yeah, yeah. I can't think of any other examples. Um right. and I think the fact that you're you know, you're noting that there's no enjambment between the stanzas is very important. So the lack of enjambment between the stanzas plus the couplets really closing them off as self-contained yeah. units. Yeah. And I think that that's both works effectively for him as a kind of, and we know this from his letters that he, he, the thing that one of the things that was most disturbing to him about his bouts with insanity was the feeling of being out of control yeah, and the feeling of chaos and vagueness and lacking boundaries between mm. himself and objects around him or people around him. Yeah. He did hear voices. Um, so you can absolutely see that. But I also think that it adds to the weirdness of the poem and the eeriness yeah. of the shifts because, you know, as you were saying, the shift from the first stanza, which seems very personal, and I agree with you, you would expect that it would go into, and my life has been, right. you know, I lost this person when I was young and then this terrible thing happened. And, um, and so I am analogous to this legendary castaway. Um, but instead, in the second stanza, it's so different. It goes into this kind right. of high language of Albion and yeah. um, this invocation of, you know, martial imagery and braver chief and the ship is leaving and right. he loved them and he never saw them again. It's very stately uh, and couldn't really be more less personal. Right. A right? kind of heroic register that exactly. makes it sound like epic or something but you don't really exactly right. yeah exactly right yeah that that's super interesting um the, i love what you said about the um the, the kind of fear he had about the vague or, or the the kind of discomfort he had with that it makes me think of my um my friend and colleague megan quigley who has this great book um on modernist vagueness she writes about oh. wolf among other things oh and about the waves and I think it's true. I think I know this from Megan that wave and vague are etymologically related. Wow! Um, so, so it makes sense to. I feel like there's something in that. This sort of feeling of being at sea, right? That is is like this experience of sort of imprecision or yes. um, unknowability. Yes. Um, I love that first line of the poem. I mean, we're into the second stanza, so that's that that that's fine. We should and we should move along. But obscurest night involved the sky. It's so strange, isn't it? Yeah. Say something about its strangeness. Uh, well, we, we've got hyperbole right from the start. Mm. We, we've yeah. got an extreme. It's not just obscure. It's not just dark. It's the Good. obscurest. Yeah. Um, it couldn't be more dramatic. But involve the sky. Yeah, and, that you know, verb this, is so interesting. So interesting. I was trying to think of another one where the meter would be preserved um, that would have a slightly different mm-hmm. meaning. But it's not a strong like if obscurus night is hyperbolically awful involved is not awful right involved mm. is it's involved with the sky it's not you know covering the sky in a dramatic way it's it's very and it and, but you could also see it as involving the sky in other words that the sky has lost its agency yeah yeah right yeah and 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 so it's in the and it's in the mix of all that that um right the 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 point that we've already touched on when such a destined wretch as i washed headlong from on board a friends of hope of all bereft his floating home forever left okay 
so we've we've gotten this br- we've right the ship right i guess right so we've gotten this brief kind of suggestion of i am like you know i am like this sailor whose story i'm now going to tell you in the second stanza what we get as you've so nicely described for us is this sort of um incongruously kind of heroic description of his departure from um from uh, land and also the kind of premonition of his um, of his fate, um, and and then what follows in the third stanza and beyond. And now I want for you to 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 walk us through what you find interesting about those moments, Priscilla, is like a a description of the kind of physical circumstances of his being in the water. Right. So what what are you noting, you know, in the third stanza or um, or thereabouts? that you want to you want to bring our attention to. Yeah, you know, comrade, I just want to say one more thing cuz you you said something that was so great about the about the night um involving this in, in other words, it's it's an absolute extreme where you you typically think of the sky the sky is sometimes light, sometimes right. it's dark. The sky is in control, but here the night is involving the sky. The sky goes under the umbrella of the night, which is very unsettling and scary. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. And then this idea of a destined wretch, right? He sounds kind of pathetic. He's washed headlong from on board. He doesn't have any control. He doesn't have any agency. Um, this terrible, ignominious fate has been determined for him in advance. Then we go to this very jarring but he had everything on his side. He had the bravest chief that could ever be. And everyone on shore left, you know, sent them off with great love and um, beneficence. Right. And then we have this horrible image of vulnerability. But, you know, one thing that I'll say about this poem in general, but particularly the stanza, these weird oxymorons and these weird sort of negatives um, that turn into positives in a strange way, like not long beneath the whelming brine, yeah. expert to swim, he lay, nor soon he felt his strength decline or courage die away. So he's saying, right. what he's ostensibly saying is, uh, you know, it, it wasn't long for him to start really swimming vigorously and with a lot of skill and a lot of strength. But right. By, but he says it in a way that, underscores a potential vulnerability, right? Strength yeah. declining, oh, courage so dying away, right? And and again, so you could say if the tight structure of the poem is, a, is in one sense an attempt at keeping vagueness and confusion and unknowability at bay, the poem is, is scored with riddled by kind of vagueness and an inability to come down on one side or the other, right? Is he strong or is he not? Like, what are we supposed to feel? Are we supposed to feel, um, because he does talk about the the courage of this guy. He waged with death a lasting strife, but he was supported by despair of life. There's another oxymoron. Right. Right. Yeah. So he, he, he thought he would, he was going to die, but so that gave him strength. We would typically think of despair of life as leading to you sinking. Right, right. And 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 in a way, it's like there's this display of heroic strength on his part, but it's yes. it's it's in the context where both his shipmates and we as readers know that that's not going to matter in exactly. the end, right? He you know, nobody can survive at sea, 
you know, forever. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, right. So, but I love the way you, you, you're, you're calling attention to these negatives and I'm, and, and I was noticing as you called attention to them in the third stanza that they were there already in a way in the second stanza, right? No braver chief, nor him beheld, nor her again. It's like this story told through its negations of what didn't happen or what wasn't the case. Exactly. Yeah. And in the fourth stanza, it continues. Right. So he shouted. So tell us, tell us now what gets established because um, part of what I think I heard you say earlier, Priscilla, is that, you know, it seems that Cooper's interest in plucking the story out of the book from which he's read it is that here is the story of like the individual um, abstracted as it were from his companions. But we do get moments in the poem that describe that almost like dramatize the kind of that abstraction happening, right? Like the, the binds between them sort of stretching, thinning and breaking, you know? Um, what what are you seeing in that fourth stanza about his relation to his friends and so on? Um, I love that, comrade. So, you know, another interesting thing about the poem, it's, it is about the individual's plight and the horror of being left behind and the horror of feeling that there's no recourse and you're, you're going to inevitably die. But it's also a poem about what it's like to be the survivor. Hmm. It's a poem about what it's like to witness that. Uh, and this stanza, the next stanza, and I believe it's the one at, right after. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, and, and again, this negative, nor his friends had failed to check the vessel's course. So in other words, the friends didn't fail. They did try. Uh, they did try to help him. But the furious blast prevailed, and they had to be pitiless, pitiless perforce. There's a real generosity and understanding there that, right, it wasn't that they wanted to desert him, but they had no choice. They, and that alliteration as well. I mean, pitiless mm. perforce. What a mm. great phrase, comrade. <laughs> I got to use that in my real life someday. Um, and they left their outcast mate. That's their perspective, right? Their outcast right. mate. He's their mate. They're close to him. And they scudded still before the wind. And then they tried to help some sucker yet they could afford. And such as storms allow the cast, the coop, the floated cord, delayed not to bestow. I love that lingering with those commas over these three elements that could potentially save him. But he, they knew, nor ship nor shore, what air they gave should visit more. It's such a strange, you know, and it was reminding me, you know, this is a strange irony of life, the relationship between literature and life, but that that Titan submersible that went down a couple of weeks ago. Right. And I was watching the, the a press conference with the head of the Coast Guard, and, and they were saying, well, why are you searching? It's day four. They're going to be dead. And he said, because this is a search and rescue mission, right. we have to do this. That's exactly what's going on here, right? In other words, right. they knew that he, they knew in parentheses, right. nothing they do is going to help, but yet they still have to go through those gestures yeah. of throwing out the cask. I'm not exactly sure what the coop is. Yeah. We should look that up. I I should know too, but I have a crazy theory about that line. Do you want to hear it? Oh, I do. What's your theory? (laughs) Well, so it first came to me with the coop, which I also don't know what it is. And maybe that's what liberated my thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Unknowability is a very good thing sometimes. It's generative. I'm not, I'm not the seafaring sort, but, um, you know, it just made me think of his name, Cooper, um, and and the cat and then oh. when I thought that, then the cask made me think of the task, 
Oh God! But, but this wait is... for it. This is it's really dumb reading. But the but the, <laughs> the the part of the last part, which I think is 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 interesting, and I don't know that we need to read it biographically necessarily. But the floated cord, you know, I think of like the umbilical cord or something like that as a, you know, a kind of attempt. I don't know. It's a sort of biological way of of keeping the vulnerable child nourished and so on while it's in utero and you know whatever. And then it's severed, you know, upon birth, and that and that marks a kind of first separation. That you know what I mean, right? Okay, you're blowing my mind. You're blowing my mind. And I'm, I'm thinking so about this this, this poet mother, who grew up without the mother. mother. That's right. That's right. You see it. Yeah. So and I you know, I would take that there, back yeah. to. I I'm so with you on this. I love it. I mean, we were both trained by Lanny Hammer, who taught us to look for the word frost <laughs> and frost's poetry. Lanny, if you're listening, all right. Love you for teaching us to read that way. Um, in the second stanza, in that last line, nor him beheld, nor her again. Right. Um, it's very interesting because yeah, what's that feminine pronoun doing? What is that feminine pronoun? Is it Albion? Um, England, I thought Albion right? was male. Uh, is it the oh, ship right, yeah. because ships are oh, female, right, right, right. or yeah. is it the mother because yeah. the de- the wretch? Remember, I read that line from the poem about his yeah. mother. Is when yeah. he calls himself. That's when I first became a wretch. Yeah, it's a way of sort so, of sneaking in that feminine pronoun. That's interesting. Yes, that's great. So. Yeah, they, they, but in any case, so they throw out all the, you know, lifelines and whatever they can attempt, but they know it's all in vain. They're sort of going through the motions, as it were. Is that like Cooper's friends and family who tried everything they could to? You tell us. I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, when I was reading it last night again, comrade, I sort of thought about that. I thought about it being almost a really moving reflection on, or on one level, right? a moving reflection on how it feels to love someone that you can't save. Right. And you can try everything, but you know, you know, you have to try, but you know that it's all ultimately going to be in vain. So is it performative? Is it coming out of guilt? Is it, I mean, I absolutely think that he is working through, he's lost the person a year or so before he wrote this poem that th- would right. throw him the cask, the coop and the floated cord. But he had a lot mate. of guilt yeah. about, um, and he writes about this in the letters, a lot of guilt about dragging his relatives and friends down into despair with him. Right. And so I think that that is part of what's going on here when he's in the next stanza, when he says, nor cruel as it seemed, could he their haste himself condemn. In other words, they're being self-protective. They're pitiless perforce. I mean, Cameron, you've read The Critic's Daughter. You see how it's registering for me with my dad. And um, but, you know, aware that flight in such a sea alone could rescue them. They have to save themselves. Right. They've got to get away. But even as he's generously understanding that what his mates have done is necessary and they did really did not have a choice he still lingers over that feeling in those in that next in the couplet, right? Yet bitter felt it still to die, deserted, and his friends so nigh. And that word deserted. Yeah. He is, he hasn't been deserted really, right? They they had right. to go on. Um, but in that lingering, to die deserted, the alliteration, you go to the deserted and there's a comma. Right. And you really he feels that is the bedrock feeling of this poem right the bitterness right. of feeling deserted by his friends and by god right, right? 
There's a yeah. there's a beautiful moment in one. There are a lot of biographies of Cooper in the um, 19th century, even in the 20th century. And there are a lot of Christian biographies of him. Um, there's a, a famous one is called the stricken deer because he compares himself to a stricken deer in the task. Yeah. Another version of a castaway, right? A deer right. that's been uh, hunted and killed, right. um, or not. I don't think he's killed. I think he's limping along, oh. um, anticipating the words for his white heart. Uh, right. But he, there's a moment in one of the biographies that says that some relative of his saw him when he was on his deathbed with a smile taking, and, and so they interpreted that as he thought he was a castaway, he thought he was a wretch, he thought he was right. destined, but he wasn't, and he right. saw God. Now, who knows if that's, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the religious, uh, the more conventional religious narrative kind of being overlaid on his, his vision um, of himself as irrevocably damned. But, you know, it's so, interesting. It sounds like it might also be survivors trying to assuage their own feelings of guilt. <laughs> you know? Yes, yeah. exactly. They threw themselves a cask. Yeah. <laughs> they gave themselves. Yeah. Um, well, you when you described how to, how moving it is to sort of see someone suffering and not being able not be able to help them, and I'm I'm thinking of versions of that as well. But I, it also, you know, I'm thinking of like what it's like to be suffering and to and to to know that friends and people who love you feel badly and would want to help you, but to know also that they can't and that you're separated from them your suffering separates you from them they can't feel the thing with you you yes. know exactly exactly and how sad is it that in this next stanza which i would i would say yeah. um is one of the most jarring moments in the poem where he suddenly goes yeah into, remind us of it um he long survives who lives an hour in ocean self-upheld and so long he Right. It's like he pulls out and we get this axiom, right? Yeah. He long survives. Like anyone who's who's alive for an hour in the ocean holding himself up, that's that's really good. Let's give him yeah. a gold star for survival. Right. Right. And then he returns to the individual. And so long he, with unspent power, his destiny repelled another oxymoron. You can't repel destiny. That's the right. point, right? And ever as the minutes flew, so we have this image of like, um, time is very interesting in this poem too, right? Mm. Um, that this hour on the ocean is like a year, right, in normal life because it's such a long survival. Yeah. But then the minutes are flying by and he's entreating help, but we already know that he, he they're not going to be able to help him. And so then he entreats help, but then, okay, it's not about help. It's about saying goodbye. Right. And it's in this kind of, I don't know what's a sort of how to properly read the the kind of cultural um, connotations of the turn to French there or something at this moment, but it feels to me like a kind of dramatic and self-dramatizing kind of thing for an English speaker to do, adieu, you know? Okay, I completely uh, agree. It was so yeah. funny. I was reading this last night, talking to my ex-husband, who you know, um, yeah. from grad school, and he's a poet. And I and, and Richard, Richard said... Um, that word is, almost makes you want to laugh. Yeah. Like there's something about it that feels very performative and very, yeah. maybe we could say it's another, dis, you know, obviously he needs the rhyme, but um, yeah, I don't there's know. another I don't distancing know how, mechanism. Maybe. And I don't know how much of that is, is just sort of the impossibility of taking off like the, you know, or, or removing my memory of like, I'm thinking of the scene in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Where the, where <laughs> 
the train is going away and he's like, oh, dear, dear. You know, anyway. So I, I, I can't. I've never un- seen that masterpiece. I must oh, put that on my watch yeah, list. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. Um, for me, the, the rhyme that ends the next stanza really gets me. Oh. The, um, so at length, his transient respite passed his comrades who before had heard his voice and every blast could catch the sound no more. Oh. For then by toil subdued, he drank the stifling wave and then he sank. <gasps> yeah. And the, and in jams, you know, the drink yeah. to the stifling wave and jams. Yeah. But and, I, and when I was reading it out loud, I was sort of lingering over it. I didn't want to go to the next line, comrade. I was like, and and I wonder, is that how you drown? You drink. I mean, it's such a yeah. weird way of describing. It's like the water the, gets into you. The water yeah. gets into you exactly. Yeah. Um, this and and toil subdued is very interesting. You know, it's you could you could do an interesting reading of this poem. I I think we read this poem. I took a class on the Georgic, um, in English poetry with Kevis Goodman, who teaches at Berkeley. She's a brilliant scholar of 18th century and early 19th century poetry. Um, and we talked about honorable toil and this, this, um, castaway is absolutely toiling honorably. And perhaps the most honorable toil is the toil that one does with no hope of reward. Yeah. And, and it, but he's subdued by his own toil, but he's subdued by his own toil. Another oxymoron. Yeah. And then we got, well, on the topic of oxymoron, no poet wept him. Except that it's happening right now. Except that it's one. happening right now. Yeah, 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 right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Another another negative that becomes a positive or positive becomes a negative. Exactly. There, there's a distinction here between um, narrative and poetry, the narrative sincere. And so I guess I wonder, this is a question for you, Priscilla. Is there something like, is Cooper, is there some kind of meaningful distinction or distinction that's worth thinking about? as we sort of speculate about what, how Cooper would have understood this between the way that a prose narrative account might memorialize um, someone like this poor castaway and, and the way that the poem that, you know, because it's poetry, the, the poem is doing it now. Is, is it a different kind of yeah. writerly I, commemoration? Yes. Yes. I, I, and you know, it's interesting because uh when I was at Yale, I taught, I taught a seminar on the poetry of sensibility. And when I got to Vassar, I taught a class on, um, sorry about the honking. That's okay. New York City, everybody. Yeah. Just some background texture. It's life um, getting in. <laughs> I taught um, the second half of the 18th century. They had a survey class and it was called Sense and Sensibility. And it was a prose and poetry. So it was interesting to read, like, a sent- teach a sentimental journey and sense and sensibility and a gothic novel alongside the sensibility poetry. Right. And I think that, you know, it, it, and it's very interesting. No poet wept him and tears by bards or heroes shadow like immortalize the dead. Is he sort of saying, is this a, a classic Cooperian moment of self-effacement? Like, I'm not really a poet. Or is he saying... I'm not weeping for him. Uh-huh. I'm just writing about him, right? It could go either way. Um, but the and narrative is sincere and um, it records these details, his name, his age. We don't have his age in the poem. The poem is more abstract, right? His worth, yeah. His worth, is that like his, his title on the yeah. ship or whatever it might be? 
and tears by bards or heroes shed alike immortalize the dead. So is he saying, I'm a bard, but because a hero has already done it, Anson, I don't need to immortalize him in this poem. I can do something else. And, it, and, and then going to the next stanza, that weird yeah. false logic, I therefore, yeah. in other words, he's almost demoting himself. He's almost assuming the position of, you know, I'm just, I'm just writing about this guy. I'm not a bard. He's already been immortalized by Anson. Um, I therefore purpose not or dream descanting on his fate. Descanting, ironic, because that's such a archaic, high right. poetic word. So he's right. like, I feel like he is a bard right there. Right. Descanting on his fate to give the melancholy theme a more enduring date. He's sort of saying, I'm not writing Elicitus. I'm not writing right. an elegy in a country churchyard, right? I'm not writing a great enduring, an elegy in a country churchyard being the most popular poem of the second half of the, the 18th century. Thomas you would have been Gray. thinking about yeah, that, right? right by yeah. Thomas Gray. Um, right. And then and then he just says, well, it's really about misery still delights to trace its semblance in another's case. In other words, is it, is it just kind of solipsism, right? And another yeah. oxymoron, misery is delighting to trace right. its semblance in another's case. Misery likes company, right? It's misery as, likes company. So, yeah, I mean, I, so, yeah, I, I, I think you're onto something here. I mean, no surprise, but the, um, <laughs> you know, what I'm thinking is that Right. He's saying, in a way, because Anson has already done this, it's, it provides Cooper with a kind of license to sort of use the story in a way that's autobiographical. Yes. Right? It's like the story's already written down. You can go look it up. I don't need to tell you his name and his worth and his age. Right? Oh, that's great, Comrade. But instead, and I can use it as a metaphor. And I can yeah. use it as a metaphor in two ways. I can make it autobiographical and I can also make it emblematic of all human beings. Right. Because we are all castaways or we all feel that we are castaways at one point or another. Yeah. In our and, yeah, tumultuous and, existence on the sea. And and though our <laughs> and though our shipmates may not help us and they may need to sail on in our time of distress, we at least have the stories of other people who have suffered our wretched fates, you know, we're kept company by those or something. Well, I mean, isn't that, you know, one of the most fundamental reasons why we read, why we love sad, we make mixtapes with sad songs. Yeah. That's why, that's why, why there are the blues, right? (laughs) I feel like we need a little musical soundtrack right now. I know I could press one of these buttons on my screen, but I don't think it would give us what we wanted. (laughs) So, and I love that, but misery still delights to trace its semblance in another's case. And there, maybe there's a rhyme is doing something kind of self descriptive, the sort of tracing, you know, kind of likeness, but orally, you know, it's, um, it, it's as though, you, you know, it's another way of saying what I just tried to say clumsily is that, like, Cooper in reading the story from Anson thinks, oh, my life rhymes with that one. You know, or my experience rhymes with that. Yes. You know, it's a kind of tracing of one yes. contour onto another. And the vagueness around the word tracing, I think, is also very interesting because it yeah. could be um, I'm just I'm putting my finger on it and I'm just tracing. In other words, yeah. I'm just feeling uh, a sense of identification and commiseration and right. sympathy. Tracing can also mean writing, like being original. Right. Right. right? So it's, is it copying or being original? Is it? I think yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. 
And then this last stanza, so glorious, I have yeah. to say, um, probably the most sort of high, sounds the most like Cooper's only hymns. Right. Um, you know, he wrote the, this beautiful hymn, God moves in mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He yeah. plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. I mean, and this I had is no a, this idea is that a... was Cooper. That's that's, that's yes. I mean, I, I knew those lines, but I didn't. I didn't know that was yes. Cooper. Yes, that's great. Um, he also invented varieties, the spice of life, Kamran. Oh, that's well. a gloss on a line from the task. Mm-hmm. Oh. Cooper is everywhere. You will. Everyone will soon see. Yeah, he's everywhere. Um, so but this is you know yeah, this is a more talk about optimistic. that last stanza for us. Yeah, yeah. So you know this poem, God was in a mysterious way. There's one of the later stanzas in that poem. Let's see if I can. Um, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Hmm. This is the inverse of that. Yeah. Th- sorry. So, so that is that hymn is more optimistic. This is not. Yeah. This is the opposite. And but it's interesting that in that hymn, it starts with God on the sea, riding yeah. upon the storm, turning bitterness into sweetness. Um, here. No voice divine, the storm allayed. God is utterly absent. Um, remember, we have the voice where they aren't able to hear his voice anymore. The mates are unable to hear the castaway's voice. Now, the castaway um, is unvisited by a divine voice that would have the power to allay the storm. No light propitious shown when snatched from all effectual aid. Um, talk about a lack of agency, complete powerlessness and vulnerability. Um, but then we perished, yeah. each alone. Uh, but I, beneath a rougher sea, and whelmed in deeper gulfs than he. I have just given you in this poem, a pr- the drank and sank being one of the um, yeah. prime examples of it, as you so astutely noted, Comrade, you know, a brutal vision of what it's like to drown or right. what it's like to, be, to die um, seeing healthy secure people and having them unable to help you and you die completely alone and then he's like and you know what this seemed pretty darn awful but my life is even worse yeah bad as that was bad as that was it doesn't even come close yeah i love i love the attention you've 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 put on the we in that third to last line we perished each alone and that's the that's the line mr ramsey or one of the lines he quotes yeah Okay, so because we're we're totally unprepared for it, we've been following this narrative about the the third person, the sailor. So the we perished each alone. Now, what is that coupling? Um, the poet and the subject of the poem, we're, we're both perishing alone. It is, or I, all I, I of us it, perish alone. You know, I think it's I think it is coupling the two of them, but it is also. And when Mr. Ramsey says it, Cam interprets it as, oh, there goes my, you know, demanding father again, drawing all the attention to himself and saying, I lost my wife. Well, I lost my mother. You know, essentially she's saying, stop, you know, with your um, narcissistic wallowing in your own grief. But I think this line, when snatched from all effectual aid, we perish each alone. Um, I remember Jill Campbell talking about it in terms of a paradox of communal isolation. Yeah. That was the phrase that she used. Yeah. Uh, and I do think that it resonates that way. Yeah. Um, all of us, when we die, but we all die. So are we united in that? We all right. struggle. We all suffer. We all feel like castaways at various points in our lives. So yeah. we're united in that. 
it's but it's but it's also like a kind of asynchronous communion or something right like we all meet this fate but we all meet it at like moments that are if we're going to be precise different yes and and right so there's something interesting i guess now as i say that about the tense of that we perished each alone in the past tense who's who's talking to us then well exactly and whelmed is past tense also right uh, although it, it it could go both ways, actually, the more I think about it. Whelmed could be, I am feeling overwhelmed. I'm, right. I'm feeling overwhelmed right now. I think whelmed is so interesting, too. The feeling yes. of being overwhelmed. And we could, you, you know, put that alongside the points that we've been making about the tight structure, the intricacy of right. the of the verse form, this sort of stay against chaos and the feeling of being overwhelmed. And rougher sea and he that perfect rhyme yeah and it is like that clincher you get at the yeah. end of the i mean you really have a feeling of oh wow yeah at the end this yeah. is horrific this is dark i get it it makes sense uh it's terribly sad it's awful and it enacts what it's describing right because we move from the we to the i right. the we splits apart Right. It's I and he at the end. Right. Right. There is it's, no unity. It, you're right. It's not. It's not trying to say something consoling about. It's not the, our shared. It's fate. refusing consolation. Yeah. It's the inverse of these hymns. Right. Yeah. But I beneath a rougher sea and whelmed in deeper gulfs than he. It's a shocker of a conclusion. It's a shocker. It? Yeah. Um. Priscilla, this was such a wonderful conversation, and I want to keep, you know, keep talking to you. But we we've got to um, bring it to a close, I think. Um, so I want to thank you for for coming on the podcast and and sharing this time with me and with our listeners. Um, I bet people are re- going to really love um, hearing you think about this poem. Uh, but before we say goodbye, I wonder if I could ask you to read it one more time for us. Sure. Cameron, this was such um, this was such a wrenching joy to use <laughs> <laughs> to use an that's oxymoron. What, that's what people typically say about talking to me for an hour. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you threw me a lot of coops. You threw me a lot of chords. It was beautiful. <laughs> All right. Obscurus night involved the sky. The Atlantic billows roared. When such a destined wretch as I washed headlong. From on board, of friends, of hope, of all bereft, his floating home forever left. No braver chief could Albion boast than he with whom he went, nor ever ship left Albion's coast with warmer wishes sent. He loved them both, but both in vain, nor him beheld, nor her again. Not long beneath the whelming brine, expert to swim, he lay. Nor soon he felt his strength decline, or courage die away. But waged with death a lasting strife, supported by despair of life. He shouted, nor his friends had failed to check the vessel's course. But so the furious blast prevailed that pitiless perforce they left their outcast mate behind and scudded still before the wind. 
some succor yet they could afford. And such as storms allow, the cask, the coop, the floated cord, delayed not to bestow. But he, they knew, nor ship, nor shore, what air they gave should visit more. Nor, cruel as it seemed, could he their haste himself condemn, aware that flight in such a sea alone could rescue them. Yet bitter felt it still to die, deserted, and his friends so nigh. He long survives, who lives an hour in ocean, self-upheld. And so long he, with unspent power, his destiny repelled. And ever as the minutes flew, entreated help, or cried, adieu. At length his transient respite passed, his comrades, who before had heard his voice in every blast, could catch the sound no more. For then, by toil subdued, he drank the stifling wave, and then he sank. No poet wept him, but the page of narrative sincere that tells his name, his worth, his age, is wet with Anson's tear. And tears by bards or heroes shed, alike immortalize the dead. I therefore purpose not, or dream, descanting on his fate, to give the melancholy theme a more enduring date. But misery still delights to trace its semblance in another's case. No voice divine the storm allayed, no light propitious shone. When, snatched from all effectual aid, we perished, each alone. But I, beneath a rougher sea, and whelmed in deeper gulfs than he. Well, Priscilla Gilman, thank you so much for reading the poem with me. Thanks for reading it again. Um, thanks for talking with me. Um, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you so much, comrade. I read it very differently the second time after our conversation. <laughs> Should we have a whole whole other conversation now to get into <laughs> yeah. what was going on? Okay, that's the sequel. <laughs> Stay tuned, everyone. Thank you, listeners, for um, following along with us. And um, make sure you're following the podcast to get um, episodes um, that are in the works already and very exciting, I'm happy to say. Um, in the meantime, that would be well, everyone, and take care. Bye.